This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. This is Judson Pierce, and I am pleased to be subbing in today for Alan Pierce, who happens to be our guest today, discussing the uncertain future of workers' compensation. Before we get started, we would like to thank our sponsors, Case Pacer, practice management software dedicated to the busy trial attorney. To learn more, go to casepacer.com and PI Now. Find a local qualified private investigator anywhere in the United States. Visit PINow.com to learn more. Well, hello, Alan. Hey, uh, Judd. Thank you for being here. Well, it's uh, my pleasure, and uh, thank you for substitute hosting. <laughs> well, as uh, my father, I've always wanted to interview you on a podcast, so this is making my uh, dreams come true. <laughs> uh, you've, been <laughs> you've been traveling the country this past year as president of the Workers' Injury Law and Advocacy Group. Uh, discussing the current status of workers' compensation laws in the United States. Tell us, what is the current status? Actually, you know, I've been practicing workers' comp for about 40 years or so. So uh, I have seen varying, I would say, er looking back on it, eras of workers' comp. And I would say today, the last year or two, uh, there has been more national attention on workers' comp than I can remember in the last perhaps 40 years and a lot of it has been critical of the current workers' comp system. So part of my duties this year as president of WILIG, the Workers' Injury Law and Advocacy Group, is we have been going around to the different states, especially states where there have been some significant difficulties in the workers' comp system, and discussing these changes that have occurred and how we can best deal with them. I'd like to take you back to the origins of workers' comp in our country. I know you've studied a lot about this topic. And I understand that we have had workers' compensation in various forms around our nation for over 100 years. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, the first workers' comp law that involved uh, the states rather than the federal government was enacted in 1911. Actually, two or three states enacted workers' comp in 1911, including Massachusetts. And certainly over the next 10 or 15 years, pretty much every state in the country adopted workers' comp. And, and just very briefly... Workers' comp was a system in which, without regard to fault, an injured worker received a percentage of his or her weekly pay and had their medical bills covered so long as they were injured as a result of, of the work they were doing. And over the course of perhaps the first several decades, uh, the workers' compensation law evolved. And as it evolved, it changed, it broadened. Uh, certain types of injuries and diseases were added when workers' comp first started, for example, occupational illnesses were not covered. It had to be a traumatic specific injury. And a variety of other illnesses or injuries or diseases became covered as a result both of legislative changes and as a result of case law. Tell us why the federal government chose to let the states handle this. Well, it always was a state-based system you know, other than something like Social Security, which obviously came into existence many years later under uh, later administrations, workers' comp was a state-by-state -state system of benefits, and it always remained that way. The federal government got involved in the early 70s because it became apparent after perhaps the first 
50 or 60 years of workers' comp, that in many states, the workers' comp system wasn't delivering the type of benefits in a fair and efficient manner that it was designed to do. For example, when the workers' comp law was first enacted in New York, the um, Supreme Court said that the workers' comp laws must provide significant benefits to the injured workers. And when we got into the 1960s and early 1970s, many states, the benefits were not significant. So the federal government got involved at that time, primarily uh, through the establishment of OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Act, under President Nixon. Not only did they focus on worker safety, but they created a commission to study state workers' comp laws. And essentially, the commission adopted perhaps uh, 19 or 20 essential recommendations and indicated to the various states that these recommendations had to be put in place with the threat of potentially a federal takeover of workers' comp, which nobody wanted. This would have eliminated the private sector or insurance and substituted the federal government. So as a result of the National Commission and the report that issued in 1972, state by state across the country, workers' compensation laws were, were broadened, benefits were increased, coverage was broadened, and more people qualified for workers' comp, and the benefits were more speedily administered and more fairly administered. And so what happened after that period of time, that sort of uh, 70s and 80s time? Did the businesses and insurance industry uh, say enough is enough? We think that we're now paying too much? No, it's not so much that the industry thought they were paying too much. This is, this is what happened. Workers' comp never was really a very high-priced line item on an employer's budget. Benefits were low. Medical costs were low. And the cost of workers' comp insurance wasn't very significant. As benefits broadened, and of course, as medical care started to escalate, and as states tried to catch up with many years of insignificant or less than adequate benefits, we saw that the first wave of what we would call workers' comp reform resulted in changes much for the better for injured workers across the board. And as the impact of that took place, premiums did start to rise, costs started to increase, medical costs across the board, never mind in work injuries, but just generally, we all know what's happened with medical care in this country, started to increase. And as a result, a lot of states then went through a second period of workers' comp reform. Those of us on the claimant side or the plaintiff side call it deform, but through the 70s, 80s, and perhaps into the early 90s, workers' comp expanded. Beginning perhaps in the early 90s, right up to now, we have seen whatever legislative changes that have taken place around the country basically have been for a reduction in workers' comp benefits, primarily for the reasons of controlling premiums, bringing premiums down. And that generally is what happens in workers' comp. Um, the system is designed to operate in a balanced state. You charge a fair premium and provide fair benefits. But as we know, it's very difficult to achieve balance. And when conditions are imbalanced, either benefits are too high or costs are too high, then somebody takes action in a state legislature, for example. And as a result of the political process, 
legislatures then re, you know, respond to whatever that crisis may be, and benefits change. So we have seen, perhaps in the last 20 years, a reduction in benefits, and we have also seen some other activities that have occurred that have changed the dynamic and calls into question uh, whether workers' comp benefits now are fair. Yeah, the constitutionality of them has been questioned. I know in Florida there was a case that uh, actually uh, talked about that, right? Yeah, there, there were several cases in Florida, the Westfall case, the Castellanos case. These are cases in which claimants have taken a position that because the Florida law, for example, has reduced benefits such as access to attorneys by limiting the role of claimants' attorneys to charge a fair fee or by reducing duration of benefits such as partial disability. And by the way, the same issue arose in Utah, the same issue arose in, in Oklahoma. The courts, the Supreme Courts in those three states in a variety of different rulings have come down and said that the so-called quid pro quo, the grand bargain, the significant benefits are no longer available. And therefore, there is a serious question as to whether the workers' compensation statute in these three states or parts of the statute are constitutional. So that in those three states, and there are similar issues in other states, that um, people are challenging the adequacy of the benefits. Well, the problem that I see from that description is that then it would be uh, the exclusive remedy would go away. The injured worker would have perhaps a right under tort law to bring a claim for an accident because the constitutionality of the comp system has been deemed to be inadequate. And we would be back to where we were in the teens and 20s with people having to wait years for a jury trial and pay lawyers thousands and thousands of dollars to represent them in a case, and the employers would have litigation costs that were greater than what they have now, and we'd be back to where we were 100 years ago. Well, right? that, that actually has been the threat of this, that... Uh and that is what the Supreme Court has said in some of these cases, is that the abolition of the civil or tort remedy goes hand-in-hand hand with significant benefits under the workers' comp system. And once it is determined that the benefits are no longer significant, then the tort immunity may disappear. So that is the threat that is happening. Right now, Oklahoma and Florida, their states have to address these recent decisions and either bring their workers' comp statute into conformity or face the prospect that will go back to uh, the old system, which I don't think anybody wants. So that's, that's one of the, the problems. The other problem has been, and we've discussed this on other episodes of Workers' Comp Matters here in the Legal Talk Network, there is a, another attack on Workers' Comp. Um, I'm going to use the term that is generally used. It's opt-out. This is a mechanism by which employers are allowed to remove themselves from the Workers' Comp system by setting up what they call an alternative employer benefit system where they, can, they, the employers, can devise their own system of benefits, delivery of benefits, and adjudication of those benefits outside of the state workers' comp system. That has been tried in Oklahoma. It's in effect in Texas, more as an opt-in system. In other words, employers are not required to have workers' comp in Texas. They can voluntarily provide it. And it's being proposed in various other states. And that is probably the single most central threat uh, to workers' comp is this so-called alternative employer benefit plan. That sounds a lot to me like forced arbitration riders uh, when you're, you as a consumer might be buying something and, and, and signing uh, an agreement stating that uh, if there was a problem with what you purchased, it would be uh, handled in a forced uh, arbitration way and you would lose your rights to some benefits. Is well, actually, in a, in a sense, yes, because virtually every state workers' comp 
system has a state board, whether it's an industrial accident board or commission, and they resolve any disputes. Under these so-called alternative employer benefit plans, the employer can set up an internal arbitration process by which the employer can select the arbitrator or the arbitration panel. And if there is a disagreement, there is no evidentiary hearing from the determination of the arbitrator, but the injured worker would be forced to file a suit under the ERISA statute in federal court where the case would be decided on technical and legal grounds. And, and that, that's a subject of a whole other show. But yeah, uh, the theory is somewhat similar, that the employer gains exclusive control and there is no state oversight. And the problem I see it is that as 100 years have gone by, people have lost sight of the initial focus of workers' compensation. Just the very title is workers' compensation. It is a, supposed to be a fair equitable system by which workers are compensated for their injuries. Proponents of opt-out do not call it workers' compensation. They call it an alternative employer benefit plan. And workers' comp is not an employer benefit plan. Employer benefit plans might be vacation, 401ks, you know, um, all sorts of of, fringe uh, fringe benefits that the employer can select and dictate as it sees fit. And by classifying workers' compensation as yet another employer benefit plan, I think is the fundamental disconnect here. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back uh, in just a few moments with Alan Pierce on the Legal Talk Network. Case Pacer is the leading practice management software for today's workers' comp and plaintiff's attorney. Named one of the fastest-growing companies in America by Inc. Magazine, We've given attorneys and their staff the ability to work from anywhere on any device. By automating workflows and streamlining non-revenue generating tasks, CasePacer enables firms to grow their practice at minimal cost. To see CasePacer in action, contact us today at CasePacer.com. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PI Now understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Now, Alan, what is the chances and likelihood of possibly having a new national commission as we had in 1972? Well, let's put it this way. That concept is under active discussion. Whether it will happen or not depends on a couple of things. How long this discussion lasts... And what's going to happen in November? We are definitely going to have a new president. We're going to have a new administration. We will likely have new cabinet officers, including a secretary of labor. But over this past year, there have been at least three so-called national summits or national conversations that either have taken place or will be taking place in which various representatives of all the different stakeholders in the workers' comp system, employers, insurers, injured workers, attorneys, medical providers, vocational providers, go right down the line, have been meeting to discuss all of these issues. And among these discussions has been, 
is the time right that there should be another national commission to take an overview of where we are and where we're going? So I don't think it's out of the question that we'll either see a new federally sponsored national commission or we may see these various stakeholders coalescing around perhaps one or two central groups to study this and bring out some recommendations internally without bringing the federal government involved. Have there been any reports in the media to inform the public generally over the last couple of years of uh, these changes that you've seen nationally? Yeah, over the last year or two, especially, National Public Radio and ProPublica have commissioned a series of articles dealing with the workers' compensation system. In addition, OSHA, which was the mechanism by which the National Commission started back in 1972, last spring, in spring of 2015, issued a report on cost shifting, how much costs that really belong to workers' comp insurers have been shifted over to other sources, either private health insurance or Medicare or Medicaid. And in addition, a group of uh, senators and representatives have written a very strongly worded letter to the Secretary of Labor, Rudy Perez, indicating that there is a growing crisis in workers' compensation. So as a result of all of these, these investigative reports, the OSHA report, um, the letter from Congress to the Secretary of Labor, there has been an increasing focus on workers' comp leading to these conversations. Um, IAIABC, which is the International Association of Industrial Accident Boards and Commissions, has held a national conversation, and that continues this summer of 2016. The Roscoe Pound Civil Justice Institute in September of 2016 will be holding another national conversation. And uh, there was a, another group that formed and met in Dallas in April of 2016. And all of these groups are studying where we are and where we're going to go. And among the other issues here is, of course, we have the Affordable Care Act, the so-called Obamacare and um, whether that is going to serve as a model for some type of single-payer system of medical coverage, that will greatly impact workers' comp. So we are in what I think is a new era, a third era. We had the first era that was pre-1972. We had the second so-called modern era that was post-1972. And now, as we are in the early stages of the 21st century, we have a changing workforce. We have a changing economy. We don't have as many factories as we had. Uh, we have new types of employments, we have new economies, new models for healthcare delivery, and all of these things are stretching the workers' comp system, and how we adapt to it remains to be seen. And shifting the cost burden as well, right? I mean, workers' compensation, though a benefit for workers, is a benefit to employers, is a benefit to the general community at large, is it not? It should be. I mean, a perfectly designed system, an injured worker would get prompt, adequate medical care, and would be able to recover and get back to work. What we have seen is that in order to keep premiums down, we now have medical treatment guidelines, we have evidence-based medicine, we have utilization review, and while I'm not suggesting that injured workers and their medical providers have a blank check that they get every test and every treatment, but I think the pendulum has gone a little too far the other way. So there is an awful lot of needless litigation over what is or what isn't effective medical treatment. We are looking at evidence-based models, which sound nice, but basically we call them cookie-cutter, cookbook medicine, where decisions are made based upon what the average treatment should be. And as a result, injured workers are getting delayed treatment. The rates for reimbursement to doctors are low, that doctors and hospitals 
would rather bill private insurance than bill workers' comp insurance. And as a result, costs are being shifted. Injured workers are not getting prompt care. Disability is extended. Costs go up. And it's just not a healthy system. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed this program. I'd like to thank our guest, Alan Pierce, for allowing me to host and be in your seat. You've given us a lot of information for us to think about, about the future of workers' compensation in this country. Thank you, Judd. It's my pleasure to be on the show. And I'd like to thank all of you for listening. My name is Judson Pierce. Thank you to Legal Talk Network for producing this program. And have a great day. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.